You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff. You want to say hi, Corey? Hey. Right. <laughs> Today we are joined by Jennifer Wiggins. She's the founder and CEO of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. She specializes in malpractice needs for doctors. So we're going to talk a little bit about all things malpractice, and she is going to answer all of your burning questions, all of our burning questions, all of those things. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, before we start asking all the malpractice questions, you want to give us a little bit about you? Like, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got where you are today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm a self-proclaimed malpractice insurance nerd. I uh, I have only been doing med mal for almost 20 years now, which seems really ridiculous uh, in the grand scheme of things. I always don't feel like I'm really that old, but, you know, time continues on. So um my quick story is right after college, I got a job at a um, malpractice insurance company right here in my hometown called Medical Protective. It's actually one of the nation's largest carriers. And um, I worked there for about 16 years. I started in the call center, just answering like 1-800 number calls, transferring doctors to their appropriate um, claim managers and agents and worked my way up into a sales position. And um, near the end of my time there, I was the regional sales leader. So I was in charge of a five state territory and I was basically the direct sales agent for those states. So I was selling malpractice insurance to the doctors in my particular region. Um, but throughout my career at MedPro and working with doctors and administrators and CEOs, what I started to realize was that there were really like two main gaps that I was seeing in the market. And the first gap that I was seeing was the fact that there's just a lot of unknowns. Like doctors don't really understand malpractice insurance. They know a lot about healthcare. They know a lot about how to take care of their patients, but they really haven't had a ton of training and education as it relates to medical malpractice insurance. So what type of policy should I buy? What carriers are the right carriers? How do I choose the right one to make sure I'm getting the right policy at the right price? So a lot of that was kind of like, the big gray area in the marketplace. And then the second thing I started to notice was similar to that, doctors just needed an expert. So they just needed somebody to say, all right, here's all of your options. Here's carrier A, B, C, D, here's what's different about them and really kind of help lead them through the conversation of finding the right fit for their particular practice. And so after about 16 years working for MedPro, um, I decided to take the leap of faith and resign and start my own agency. So um, Aegis Malpractice Solutions is a boutique insurance agency. We only do medical malpractice insurance. So we help healthcare providers all across the United States. And our job is to educate, provide a lot of content and great resources, but then obviously um, serve as an agent or a broker. So we don't represent any one particular carrier. Our job is is to bring solutions from the entire market to help a doctor really assess what their options are, get them quotes, help them understand, and then find the right fit for their practice. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that people don't have a lot of great medical malpractice education because I think we experience that a lot in terms of financial planning, where maybe in med school they got like one two-hour crash course on financial financial planning. They probably got like one one-hour crash course in malpractice, and they don't they don't get a lot of that, you know. And obviously they're focused more on medicine, which totally makes sense. But this is knowledge that they need too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So before diving into malpractice insurance questions, maybe let's start with the reason people need it, and that's getting sued for malpractice. So, like, what are some of the main causes of malpractice claims? Why does why does it happen? 
Yeah. So there's a number of drivers, obviously, when it comes to claims, and it has a lot to do with a couple of different factors. The main drivers for a doctor to get sued are their specialty. So what area of medicine are they practicing in? And then the other big driver is geographically, where are they practicing? So as much as we don't want to admit it, there are definitely places in the United States where it's more litigious, and there are other parts of the United States where it's maybe a little less litigious. And generally, you know, the major metropolitan areas are the places where doctors are more likely to get sued. Um, and so if you practice in Chicago or Miami or Los Angeles or Las Vegas or New York City, some of those big areas, um, you're more likely to be sued if you practice there just because the jurisdiction that you're in. Um, obviously, depending on your specialty then as well, it could be for a variety of different reasons. So, you know, the most common reason that a doctor gets sued is because of diagnosis-related issues. So either a misdiagnosis or a delayed diagnosis. Um, obviously, that's a big driver. Surgical errors are another big area. So obviously, any issues related to surgical errors. So those are the two biggest um, buckets when it comes to like types of claims. Um, but again, it just depends on the specialty. So, you know, there could be anesthesia related issues. There could be um, quite frankly, just miscommunication between the staff of, we thought Dr. So-and-so was doing the follow-up and they didn't. So oftentimes just case management issues, those can be some of the biggest drivers when it comes to malpractice cases. And then is it typically on the doctor or if like they're working for a hospital, is the hospital brought into it or is it all kind of a package deal? Yeah. So normally what happens is when a patient sues a doctor, they're going to sue the provide their primary provider. They're going to sue the employer or the place that that doctor works for, the facility that the treatment happened at, and quite frankly, any other provider that they've ever seen within the course of their treatment for that particular thing. So it's, it's very rare for just one doctor to get sued. Generally, there are multiple parties, multiple entities named in a given lawsuit. And obviously, as the claim progresses and they start doing discovery and figuring out the real facts of the case, then people will be dropped or dismissed. But it's not uncommon for a doctor to get wrapped up in a case with a patient that they saw just one time um, and they had very little to do with. So it's more common that it's a broad sweeping, you know, list of characters that's named in a malpractice case. That's generally uh, the plaintiff attorney is, you know, throwing the spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. And so a lot of times doctors may get roped into something if they had very little to do with it at all. Yeah. So I, I know you mentioned a couple of times that things vary a lot by specialty, which makes sense. But um, broadly speaking, like how often does this happen? Like how likely is it that a doctor would face the malpractice claim during their career? Yeah. So obviously it depends on their specialty and where they're practicing. Um, but, you know, the reality of it is if you're in a surgical specialty, you're in high, one of the higher risk specialties, almost 100 percent of those guys will experience a claim by the time they retire. Um, usually, you know, the stats show that by the time you reach age 40, you know, 75 percent of surgical practitioners will have at least been named in a case or a suit. By the time you reach retirement age, almost 100 percent of doctors will be sued at least one time. You know, lower level specialties, the ones that are maybe not doing um, surgical work, such as, you know, dermatologists, allergists, family practice doctors, those numbers would go down slightly. Um, but it still is fairly likely. So 60% of those people, by the time they reach retirement age, will be involved in at least one case. Now, that's not to say that it's going to be a paid claim, right? But they're going to probably be named in at least one malpractice case by the time they reach retirement. Right. And whether, you know, there's a judgment against them or not, obviously, it's very expensive to be sued. And and so your malpractice insurance is serving a purpose, even if, you know, the person doesn't win. That's right. That's right. So you have to have malpractice insurance in order to practice anyways. Most hospitals will require it. And, you know, for credentialing, as you guys have probably heard, most of the doctors, that's one of their big things is getting credentialed at locations. And you have to have insurance in order to get credentialed. So it's a necessity in that regard, but it's also a necessity for exactly what you just described, which is it pays for that lawyer that's going to defend you and get you off of a claim um, it's going to cover all of those expenses that you would normally have to pay out of pocket. You know, if your license ever gets questioned, if you have any other allegations made against you, this insurance policy is there to protect you and to give you those advocates. And you mentioned that you know, not all cases get 
a claim payout? Like, do you have any data on percentage of claims that actually result in a payment versus a settlement before the final judgment versus just get thrown out? Yeah. So it, again, it just depends on all of the factors that we've already talked about. And quite frankly, it also just depends on how good the malpractice carrier is and how aggressive they are at trying to get out of a case. You know, you have some carriers that are going to be much more aggressive in wanting to defend um, a good, you know, the good practice of medicine as much as possible. You've got other carriers that maybe just are more likely to write a check and get out of it. Um, so it depends on the defense philosophy of the carrier as well. But, you know, for most of the big A-rated large insurance carriers, 80% of those cases are going away for no payment. So it's in, you know, the, the numbers are in doctors' favors. So 80% of the time, a carrier is either winning the case or getting it dismissed before it goes to trial. The number can even be higher depending on the carrier. You know, you have some carriers that are 89% or 90% of the time they're winning cases. Um, so it's only a very small percent of time that doctors are actually getting payments made on their behalf, whether it's a settlement or an indemnity payment. But of course, those are the ones that we always hear about because those are the ones that make headlines. Um, but most of the time, you know, juries tend to be very, um, I guess, doctor sensitive. So we see physicians as healthcare heroes, as, as doing the right thing the majority of the time. So, you know, juries want to find in favor of a doctor. Um, and so, again, those numbers tend to be in their favor. So most of the time, 80 to 90 percent of the time, there is no payment on a malpractice claim. And how common or uncommon is it for, I think probably the biggest fear for a lot of our clients is, you know, is my malpractice insurance going to cover all of the claim? Like how common is it for them to actually be personally liable and have to like write a check out of their own pocket? It's not very common for them to have any personal exposure outside of what their insurance covers, particularly as long as they're appropriately insured. So they have to carry the, the right amount of coverage. So it's important when a doctor gets a quote for malpractice insurance that they're talking to their agent about what level of coverage is right for them. So in some states, those limits are dictated by, you know, whatever the state rules are. For example, where I practice, where we have our um, office in Indiana, um, we have a state patient compensation fund, so every doctor in the state of Indiana has to carry the exact same limits. And then the state actually has a patient compensation fund that kicks in for any claim payment that exceeds their underlying malpractice insurance limit. But every state is unique. So again, you just have to talk to your agent to figure out what the right amount of coverage is for you. You certainly don't want to be overinsured because there are some risks with you know having a target on your back and carrying way too much insurance. Um, but you want to be adequately insured so that you're not leaving yourself personally exposed. So it's not very likely that a doctor would have to pay anything out of pocket on their own. The only time we ever see that, and again, this is very, very rare, but you know, when it comes to malpractice claim payments, there's just the normal you know, economic damages, which is pain and suffering, the cost of medical bills and all of that. But if a doctor is ever found guilty and they have punitive charges against them, so that would be in the instance where a doctor was intentionally reckless or trying to hurt somebody, um, malpractice insurance does not cover any punitive charges against a doctor. So if you've got a doctor that's just an absolute hack job, and I hate to say that, but if you've got a guy that's just not right and is intentionally hurting patients, then they would be responsible for that personally. But that very rarely happens. So, um, but that is something to think about. Very interesting. And does malpractice cover the doctor's attorney fees or is that on the doctor to put that? Yeah, bill? it covers all their attorney fees. So that's part of why you buy the insurance. So um, and that does not erode their limits. So if you have a one million dollar policy limit per claim, but the insurance company pays $80,000 in attorney fees, plus court fees, plus all of the other administrative costs of filing a claim, those do not erode their limits. So Assuming you have a good quality insurance policy, your defense costs will be paid by the insurance carrier outside of your policy limits. So that that amount of coverage is purely for settlement payments or indemnity payments on behalf of the doctor. Awesome. That I didn't know, which is really interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, at what point do you think like doctors or medical students, residents, trainees, like at what point do you think people should be thinking about this? 
You know, it, um, most of them are not even thinking about it at all until they have an idea of where they're going to be practicing and what they're going to be doing after they finish training. So um, we actually do quite a bit of education. We do some MedMal 101 courses for residents and medical students. So I think it's important that you start kind of getting familiar with the types of policies and understanding some basic concepts while you're finishing up your training. But usually it's like six months before you graduate is the right time to start thinking about um, all right, where am I going to be practicing? Am I responsible for getting my own insurance or is my employer going to be providing that for me? And then um, if you need to get your own, then you need to probably start finding an agent who can start shopping around for you and presenting you with some options so that you can have an idea of what those costs are going to look like. Okay. So the assumption is that while a trainee is in residency or fellowship, they should be adequately covered and not necessarily worrying about that. That's correct. Residency programs, medical schools are generally self-insured. So you don't have to buy your own malpractice insurance while you're in training. If you're doing a fellowship program, usually you will have to get malpractice insurance if you go to do fellowship training. Um, but again, most residency programs are self-insured. Most medical schools are self-insured. So you're not really thinking about buying your own malpractice insurance until you're actually getting finishing training and starting private practice in some aspect, whether it's joining a hospital, a medical group, or going solo. And I'm guessing for the fellowships that require you to get your own, they probably kind of tell you what to do and hold your hand through that process. So there's not a whole lot of work you have to do on your own. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times those fellowship programs will have a carrier that they already work with. And so they'll just kind of refer you on. Um, but oftentimes fellows will have to pay for their own malpractice insurance. And so that's the first time they kind of get that dose of reality of having to be responsible for that on their own. What if they do any moonlighting? Like if you're a resident, you can moonlight at a different location. How does that work? Yeah, it's actually becoming really common. So if you want to moonlight while you're in residency, um, you have to get your own malpractice insurance. But what you're going to be getting is basically like a moonlighting policy. So it's essentially a part-time malpractice insurance policy. So it's, you know, reduced costs, cost, you know, minimal coverage because you're probably only working a couple of days a week because you're obviously still in training, but you need to get your own malpractice insurance if you're going to be moonlighting. So that would be another time where you'd want to contact an agent and get some quotes and secure a policy for any kind of uh, work you want to do on the side. Yeah. I have had a lot of clients that were able to do moonlighting like at their training institution and because they were doing it at that facility, they didn't need like any sort of excess coverage, which can be really nice, but definitely something to be thinking out if, if, if you're like outside of your hospital system. Yeah. Yep. For sure. And then this one always trips me up. I can never remember. There's two main types of malpractice coverage, occurrence-based and claims base. Can you help me understand the difference between the two? Yeah. And I'll tell you, Corey, this is the number one question that we are asked. I think I explain this on a daily basis because um, it's just complicated, but it's so foundational to being able to buy malpractice insurance. If you don't know the differences, it's really hard when an agent just gives you a quote because you don't know apples from oranges. Um, so this is a concept that's super complicated and can be hard for doctors to understand. So I'll give you the hopefully simple version of how to how to know the difference. So the two different types of policies, like you mentioned, are occurrence coverage and claims made coverage. And then the two different policy types, they're different based on how the insurance triggers, how the coverage triggers for the doctor. So an occurrence-based malpractice policy, the coverage triggers based upon when the incident actually occurred. So the name of the policy is the triggering event. So if you have an occurrence policy, insurance triggers based on when the incident occurred. So as long as you had insurance in place at the time that you treated the patient and the event happened, you will be covered for that event even if the claim is filed two, three, four, five years down the road because the triggering event is the date of the occurrence. So occurrence malpractice policies are the most flexible type of insurance that you can buy because you only need to carry the insurance while you're practicing. So if you're moonlighting and you're, you know, working for, you know, a company while you're finishing residency, but you know it's only a two-year gig, if you buy an occurrence-based policy, you only have to carry the insurance for those two years, and then when you're done, you can just walk away. And if any claim happens to still be filed down the road, 
for patients you treated during those two years, then that original occurrence policy will activate to cover you. So the occurrence policy does not require any tail insurance because those policies stand independent of one another. So there's no tail required on an occurrence policy. The other type of insurance that you can buy is called claims made insurance. And this one triggers the opposite way. So claims made insurance triggers based on when the claim is made against you. So a claims made policy is really two policies in one. So you have to carry the insurance while you're practicing, but then when you're done, you have to buy tail insurance. Tail insurance is a policy that starts on your cancellation date and it extends your insurance indefinitely into the future for any claims that may be made against you after you've already left that particular policy. So claims made insurance triggers based on when the claim is made against you. So if you treated a patient in May of 2022, but the claim doesn't get filed until May of 2025, you would have to have insurance in place on May 2025 in order to have coverage for that incident in 2022. So the tail insurance is a really critical part of the claims made policy because once you cancel that insurance, if you don't have tail in place, then you essentially have no coverage for any of the patients that you treated previously. Even if you paid your premiums for all of those years that you carried the insurance, you have to have an active policy in place in order to be covered on a claims made policy. And so that's what the purpose of that tail is. That's your active policy that covers you after cancellation. So obviously, you know, with those two policy types, then there's a difference in premium, right? So the occurrence policies, which every after I explain the difference between the two policy types, everyone's like, well, I want the occurrence. Well, it's more expensive, right? So the occurrence <laughs> premium costs a little more. The claims made premium is cheaper. So the claims made policy um, starts at a pretty low premium and then it increases in price every year until it reaches its mature rate. But then you have to buy your tail at the end. And tail insurance is usually two times your mature premium. So if you're paying $10,000 a year for a mature claims made premium, then your tail insurance is going to cost you, you know, $20,000 or so. And is that just a one-time 20000 That's not annual, yep. right? Nope, okay. it's a one-time payment. So as soon as you cancel your claims made policy, the insurance carrier gives you an offer of tail and you've got basically like two months to buy it if you want it. Now you don't have to buy it, um, but if you don't, then again, you have no forward protection for anybody that you treated previously. Um, now you can always switch and go to a new insurance carrier that will continue the coverage for you. But if you're officially canceling and walking away, oftentimes this happens like if a doctor's leaving a, a job. So if there's a doctor that's leaving a medical group and going out, going solo or leaving a medical practice to go somewhere else, usually they force them to buy that tail when they walk away. Um, and that again, just covers them going forward for any patients that they treated during the years when they worked for that practice. Yeah. A lot of times when we're talking to clients, we talk about tail coverage. Like if you're responsible for this, think of it almost like the cost to leave your job. Like you can't leave unless you do this. Yeah. Or you, you should do it. <laughs> Correct. One of the things that yeah. I don't think doctors realize though, is that um, you don't have to buy the tail insurance from the carrier that you originally were insured by. In today's malpractice market, there are a lot of carriers that now offer standalone tail. So basically, if you were with carrier ABC for 10 years, they're going to be the ones that give you your initial offer of tail quote. But if that's really expensive, you can actually shop around and you can find, you know, four or five other carriers that can give you competing tail quote offers for the exact same thing. So in, our, in the marketplace now, we're seeing lots of carriers basically competing against each other for tail business. And so doctors actually have more options today than they ever have to make sure they get, you know, the best priced tail coverage. And then how common is it, I guess, for if you're leaving, say, a hospital, um, is it commonly required that the doctor purchase that tail? If it's, well, I guess maybe two questions. One, what, what's more common that you see, occurrence-based or claims-based? And if, you know, with claims-made policies, does the employer often pick up the tab for that tail or is it usually on the doctor or it just depends? Yeah. So um, 
when it comes to employed physicians, the more common policy type is claims made. And let's be honest, it's because it's cheaper. <laughs> um, the occurrence policy um, is more common in like the solo practitioners or the guys that are buying their own malpractice insurance and they see the value in that. Um, so occurrence coverage is generally more common there. It just depends. So I would say 75% of the malpractice policies that are issued across the country are claims made policies. So it's definitely the more common of the two. Um, but in terms of how likely is it that you're going to be responsible for your own tail, it just depends on how what your employment contract reads at the time that you sign with that group. Most of the time, it's the doctor's responsibility to buy it. And usually what we find out is they're not aware of that until the day that they leave. And then they're like, holy cow, you mean to tell me I've got to now buy this? I've got 60 days to buy this $30,000 tail policy. So a lot of times doctors don't even realize they have that financial burden um, that they've got to kind of hold on their own shoulders after they walk away. To your point, it's like buying your way out of an employment arrangement. Um, most of the time, doctors have to buy it on their own. Sometimes the group will buy it for them, but I would say the more common you, option usually is that the doctors got to buy it on their own. Yeah, I do feel like in big hospital systems, it's it's less likely that they'd be responsible for their own tail coverage. And the nice thing is, is that like if you're reading your contract correctly and, and you really understand it, it should be very clear. Um, and then also I've seen it structured sometimes where, hey, if you satisfy this three-year minimum term requirement and you work here for three years, we'll cover it. If you don't, you have to cover it. So as long as you really, really understand, one, if you have to pay it or not, and two, what's the potential cost if you do have to pay for it, those are the two things that we really suggest people are really careful about. Yeah, for sure. And you're exactly right. Most hospital employed physicians don't have to buy their tail insurance, but that's because most hospital systems are self-insured. So when a doctor leaves a hospital system, um, you know, the hospital doesn't have to buy the tail because it's their risk anyways, because they're self-insured. So when a doctor leaves a hospital, most of the time, you're exactly right. They don't actually have to buy their tail. They just simply put the doctor on what's called a departed roster. So they have like this running list of people who have left the hospital system. So in case a claim comes in, you know, involving anybody on this departed list, they know they're a covered individual, but because the hospital is self-insured, they don't actually buy a tail policy for you when you leave. You just kind of go under the departed schedule. Very interesting. What are some things doctors should be thinking about um, when you know, pertaining to malpractice insurance when they switch from training into their first attending job? Yeah. So a couple of things, I think number one that we already talked about is just to be really aware of the difference between the two different types of insurance that you can buy. We always recommend that people get quotes for both occurrence coverage and claims made coverage so that they can really compare the options between the two. Um, the other thing I would say is when you're getting those two different quotes, make sure that you are getting um, your, your claims made premiums for year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. Because like I mentioned, that claims made premium starts out at a really low price, but then it increases in rate every single year for five years. Once it reaches year five, then it's basically considered mature. It like caps out at year five. But the problem is because the occurrence premium is more expensive, it doesn't have that stepping up. So let's just say an occurrence premium is $10,000 a year um, or a claims made policy might be $2,000 for the first year, but then it's $3,500 for the next year, and then it's $5,500 for the third year, and then it's $7,500. And then when it reaches the mature price of $9,500, it's very comparable to what you would have been paying for that occurrence premium every single year. But obviously, you're saving in those first four years, which if you don't get the each, if you don't have your carrier quote all five years of claims made, and they just say here's a ten thousand dollar quote and here's a two thousand dollar quote, you know you may be more likely to choose the cheaper one, not knowing what the long term costs really look like, um, and also then considering the fact that you're going to have to buy tail at the end. So it's really important that you, I think, get quotes for both and get progressive you know, subsequent year premiums so that you can really do a long-term cost benefit analysis to find the one that's going to be the right fit for you. So that's probably the most important thing for um, 
providers finishing up residency to, to be considering. The other thing that I'll mention is the fact that um, almost every single malpractice insurance carrier offers some pretty significant discounts for your first year out, um, first year in practice. So most doctors right after residency or fellowship their first year out, they get at least 50% off their rate. So usually it's 50 to 60% off. So they can save quite a bit of money on their first year premium because they're a new grad. Um, that premium, obviously the credit is high the first year and then it gradually steps down. So it's not a permanent discount, but it does kind of ease that financial burden into practice um, where you have to start buying your own malpractice insurance. The rate's a little bit um, more cost effective your first year out. Right. And this is applicable for, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say, is this more applicable for people when they're like going out and starting their own practice and just doing the shop from scratch, basically? Correct. Correct. Okay, yep. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But I was going to say, if they're going into an employment arrangement, I think um, there are some other things that they need to be really considerate of as well. And so I do think you still need to have that baseline knowledge of occurrence versus claims made, because if you're going to be joining a practice or joining a hospital and they get, they say, we'll cover your malpractice insurance for you. It's important that you understand what kind of coverage they're giving you. So you still need to know, are they giving you an occurrence policy or a claims made policy? And if it's a claims made policy, it's important that you understand whose responsibility will that tail insurance be when you leave and what are the stipulations around that? Because if you're, you know, in any kind of a position where you can negotiate, you could try to, you know, if you're not happy with the terms being presented to you, now is the time for you to try to work something out where, um, again, maybe you earn a free tail for a certain number of years employed or whatever, whatever you are more comfortable with, but it's important that you at least are aware of what's going to be required of you um, when it comes to the tail insurance. Um, there's two other things for employed physicians in particular that I think it's important that you understand. And the first one is, um, I'll just say it's limited scope and duty coverage. So basically what that means is this, if you're going to work for a hospital and they're providing your malpractice insurance for you, chances are the insurance that they're giving you is limited scope and duty coverage, which means you're only covered for the work that you do for that facility. So if you want to moonlight, you're not covered for any moonlighting. If you want to go work at the free clinic on the weekends, you're probably not covered for the work that you do for the free clinic. If your kid is going to Boy Scout camp and you want to be the um, you know, camp physician for the weekend, you're not covered for that either. So you just have to be very aware that although the insurance is being provided for you, you're only covered for the work that you're doing for that particular employer. So be very cognizant of that before you just start accepting little things you might want to do on the side. And then the third thing um, is consent to settle, which is kind of this like major issue that nobody really talks about, but it can be a really big deal for healthcare providers. And that is this, you want a malpractice policy that gives you absolute consent to settle because if you get named in a malpractice case, you should be the one to be able to give the final say so on whether or not you want a malpractice case to be settled on your behalf. Oftentimes, if you're employed, you don't get consent or they may say you get consent unless we think you're being unreasonable or you get consent unless you're no longer working here. And then if you're no longer working here and you get named in a claim, we can settle it on your behalf. And why that's a problem for doctors is because if a doctor gets named in a malpractice case and if there's a payment made on their behalf, that gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, which is this national database of malpractice cases and action against doctors that can be used when a doctor goes to apply for privileges at a facility or goes to get credentialed. It basically gets put on their record forevermore. Um, it can also cause issues in terms of, you know, applying for new malpractice insurance. Now you have to disclose that you've been named in a case. Obviously, it could also increase your premium. Uh, if, the, if the issue is bad enough, it could potentially get reported to the licensing board. Um, so there's just a lot of things that could be, you know, variables and issues that doctors don't want to have to deal with. But if you don't have consent, sometimes you're handcuffed and you have very little control. So it's important that providers are asking, do I have consent to settle in the policy that you're providing for me? Very interesting. Any other things that 
they should be looking at in a policy or asking about? You know, obviously the devil's in the details. Not all policies are going to cover the same things, maybe. Yeah, I think it depends if, if it's a policy that you're buying for yourself or if it's a policy that's being provided for you. Um, if you're if it's a policy that's being provided for you by an employer, I think to your point, the devil is in the details. You really do need to be very cognizant of what's being provided for you. What's it covering? What's it not covering? What type of insurance is it? Are there any limitations you need to be aware of? Um, you know, what's the tail requirement for me when I leave? Um, those types of things are especially important for the employed pro providers. If you're shopping on your own and you're buying your own insurance, I think it is much easier for you to be aware of, okay, what company am I buying from? Are they a quality company? You know, what are the other perks and benefits? Because now you're talking about, you have four or five different quotes, and now you can maybe pick a mutual insurance company that pays you dividends on an annual basis. Or I like this other insurance company because they have a retirement savings account for me. And every year that I stay with them, they take a portion of my premium and they put it in a savings account that I get to cash out at retirement. So when you are, when you're the consumer, you're the one buying your own insurance, I think it's much easier for you to be a little more selective um, and really finding the policy that you want. So that way you're not only getting the best coverage at the best possible price, but you're able to be much more selective in you know, picking the carrier um, that you most wanna be working with. For physicians that are getting their own coverage, um, how often should they be revisiting that? So obviously it's probably not like a one and done thing. I have malpractice, I'm done, let's move on. Like obviously at some point they might wanna look at that again. Yeah. Well, the malpractice marketplace is constantly moving. I mean, there are always carriers entering and exiting the market. There are carriers that are tweaking their rates almost on, an, on a regular basis, just like any other insurance market, as you guys probably are aware of, you know, malpractice carriers can take rate increases, they can take rate decreases. So it just depends on the nature of the market. So our agency, we recommend that doctors shop around at least every three years. Now that's not to say that you need to change every three years because there are some disadvantages to being an insurance hopper, but it is, I think, important that at least every three years you're going back to market and you're taking a look at uh, where are we at? Am I still paying a fair price? Am I still getting the right coverage at the right dollar? Um, so three years is generally what we recommend just because the market moves so frequently, but that can be really difficult for doctors to do, right? Because, you know, some insurance carriers don't work directly with physicians. You have to go through an agent. Other insurance carriers, you know, you can access directly. So for a doctor, sometimes it can be really hard to navigate the market because they don't even know what carriers are available or which ones should they be looking at. So that's where an agent or a broker can really be valuable because then, um, you know, what we'll do for our clients is at that three-year mark, we'll do a full market assessment. So we'll say, all right, here's what's happening in the market. Here's what's happening with your particular specialty as it relates to claim frequency and severity trends. This is what's happening in your state in terms of how frequently doctors are getting sued. And then here's what's happening in the overall market. So this carrier is taking some rate increases. So if you're with this carrier, we might want to take a look at other options, or we could say it looks pretty baseline, you know, amongst everybody. So I think you're probably good with what you have today. So an agent can really be that advocate for you and really do that legwork because otherwise it can be super overwhelming. If a doctor has to shop around every three years, every five years or whatever they determine is appropriate for them, that can feel like a lot of work. So, you know, you might know you should do it. It's just a matter of, I don't have time to do it and I don't know how to even begin shopping around. And then if you're running your own practice, and if you're just a solo doctor, it's probably a little more straightforward. You get a policy for yourself, but if you have multiple doctors or providers, maybe you have PAs, nurse practitioners, et cetera, like how do you go about getting malpractice for the practice? Is it something that you get policies and everyone has the same thing for the practice or do each is each doctor responsible for getting their own? What's common? What's like, I, that's a messy question, but uh, what, what do you do? <laughs> it's a good question. So, you know, the, the 
the bottom line is every physician and surgeon has to carry their own individual malpractice insurance. So if you're a solo practitioner and then you hire a partner, they've got to get their own insurance as well. Now there is some benefit to everyone in a practice being insured with the same carrier because a lot of times you get a group discount if everybody's all with the same carrier. Usually it also makes more sense from a common defense philosophy. So if, if multiple people in the practice get sued, um, you want one carrier to kind of quarterback everything so that you can make sure everyone's getting a joint defense and everyone's working and playing together nicely. So um, usually we recommend, and most practices do this anyways, but usually you want everyone in your group insured with the same carrier. So usually every doctor has to carry their own insurance and then you're going to get a policy for the practice itself. So if you're John Smith MD and your practice is John Smith MD LLC, then you're going to get an insurance policy for your LLC as well. And the entity policy will cover obviously the name of the practice because if a patient sues you, they're suing you and they're suing the business. So it covers the business, but then the entity policy also extends coverage to any mid-level providers. So if you do hire a nurse practitioner or physician assistant or an RN or an esthetician or a CRNA or you know name the designation, that entity policy can cover all of those providers on a shared limit basis. Now, if you have like a nurse practitioner or a PA that's doing a lot of procedures, like they're pretty active and they're hustling, you might want to get them their own policy just to give them their own separate level of coverage. But generally, each doctor carries their own coverage, the entity carries its own coverage, and then most of the time the mid-levels are just covered underneath there. But because it's a shared limit policy under that group, you know, if you have 10 mid-levels, sharing a $1 million limit, you know, that may feel a little too close for comfort. So, you know, that's part of the reason why an agent can also help guide you as your practice grows and evolves, they can recommend, hey, since you're hiring two more this year, why don't we go ahead and get some quote options for breaking them out and putting them out on their own, just so that we're not putting so much risk under that one entity policy. So that's really a conversation that you have with your agent ongoingly as the practice evolves but generally that's how it's done. So each physician or surgeon gets their own, the practice gets its own policy um, that covers all of the mid-level staff, but you can cover mid-levels individually if you want to. Is there a standard for who pays for what? Like does the practice typically pay for it all or does each doctor have to pay for their own or it just kind of depends? It just depends on how the practice is structured. Usually, you know, larger practices, so, you know, a group of 10 orthopedic surgeons or a group of 20 anesthesiologists, usually the practice pays the premium. Now, that could also, there could be a stipend or something that gets taken out of the physician's salary. So they might be paying even though they don't realize they're paying, but usually the group is kind of like the, you know, the quarterback for that whole transaction. So the CEO or the practice administrator will kind of be the person who manages the malpractice insurance for everyone in the group. Um, that's usually what we see for like the larger practices in particular. If it's just a startup and there's one or two doctors, you know, they may each pay their own but they have the flexibility of, of doing that however they want. So on the totally opposite end of the spectrum of like a large practice, sometimes we have clients who are just doing like locums work and maybe they're traveling, maybe they're like practicing in different states and things like that. Is there anything in particular that they should be aware of in terms of their malpractice planning? Um, not outside of what we've already talked about, but I would say the one issue that's of most importance to like locums providers is that issue of claims made versus occurrence coverage. We highly recommend that locums providers get occurrence-based policies because they're popping in and out of assignments so frequently. Um, occurrence policies are just more flexible. So if you're working at one place for three months and then you're working at another place for 30 days, you don't have to constantly be asking yourself, okay, wait, do I have to buy tail? for my three months here, or do I need to buy tail? Occurrence coverage is just more flexible. Most of the big staffing agencies, um, they issue coverage on an occurrence basis anyways, so that's more common in the locum space. Um, the other thing to think about with locums coverage is depending on how often you're working, most of the locums providers can get some discounted premiums. So if you're not working a full schedule, like let's say you're working three weeks on, one week off. When a malpractice carrier is coming up with your premium, they're looking at your annualized hours for the year. So, you know, sometimes you'll have a, a doctor that like works for a month and then takes a month off or works for two weeks, takes two weeks off or, you know, works one week a month. It just depends on their schedule. 
they're looking at your average number of hours that you're working per week. And so oftentimes locums providers can get some significant discounts on their rates because they'll actually qualify for like part-time status because they're not working the standard, you know, 40, 50 hour work week that a full-time employed provider might be working. Interesting. What are, I guess, any other questions or things people should be aware of about malpractice insurance that we haven't already asked you? You know, I think it just depends on the situation that each person finds themselves in. You know, we have a lot of conversations with doctors that are considering leaving their employment and they want to have a confidential discussion of, okay, what does this mean for me? What do I need to be asking? How much is it going to cost for me to go out on their, my own? So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're having is very situational. Or, for example, hey, I'm thinking about adding telemedicine to my practice. What would that do to my exposure? How much would, would that change my premium? So those kinds of questions is really what we get a lot of um, are those situational questions of I'm thinking about this or what happens if I do that. Um, so it really just depends on, you know, what you're doing, what you're interested in doing, and then you can have a discussion to make sure you've got the right insurance for what you're planning for the future. I think it depends is our favorite answer to every question. <laughs> I think the most important thing is just that you have a baseline understanding of the types of insurance that are available. Obviously, once you know that, and you can be fairly educated in understanding the whole issue of tail insurance and everything else. So um, that's a really important concept. We actually um, have on our website a free resource that you guys would be happy you be you could share with your audience if it would be beneficial. But there's a free download called the Ultimate Guide to Occurrence versus Claims Made Coverage that you guys could share with anybody that's interested. Um, that, in addition to a variety of other resources such as how much coverage should I have. Um, tail insurance, FAQs, those types of things. There's all sorts of free resources that you guys could certainly use um, if it would be beneficial to your audience as well. So how do they find you? Yeah, so Aegis Malpractice Solutions um, probably would help to spell it, but it's A-E-G-I-S. <laughs> but how do doctors find you? Like, how can you help them? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. So it's Aegis Malpractice, um, which is not how it sounds. It's actually A E. <laughs> G-I-S, malpractice.com is our website. We also have um, a weekly podcast called Malpractice Insights, and they're short little 10-minute episodes on little nuances and aspects of malpractice insurance that might be beneficial for physicians. So like last week, we talked about the five ways that you can earn free tail insurance. Um, so just little things like that, just quick pops of information. All of those resources are also on our website, which again is aegismalpractice.com. Um, you can also schedule just a 10-minute phone call if you just want to talk through your specific situation and learn what your options are. And if you need to get quotes for coverage, uh, we would be happy to help you. We're also on, obviously, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all the things. But the website is usually the best place to start, and uh, you can reach us from there. Super cool. And then one last question I just thought of, aside from, you know, picking a lower risk specialty and not practicing in a big city, um, are there any other things that doctors can do to help reduce the risk of a malpractice claim? And then if they are named in a suit, like what can they do to help get out of it? You know, maybe you know, taking good notes, making sure the EMRs are thorough. Like what are, what are some, some good practices they should uh, try and exhibit on a daily basis? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I'll tell you, there's a couple of things that are going to seem super simple, but they really do move the dial in terms of reducing your risk. Um, and the first one, which is going to sound really, really, really simple is bedside manner. So the reality of it is, you know, if you can develop a relationship with a patient and the patient no likes and trusts you, they're less likely to want to sue you. So if you can immediately start to developing a rapport with the patient, slow down, listen. Um, there was a really interesting study that showed that physicians, when they enter the room, the physicians that sit down on a stool next to the patient are seen as more empathetic than physicians that come into the room and are immediately standing, hovering over their patients, which seems more domineering. Um, so little things like that, that it just, it also, when you sit, it makes it look like you're taking your time. You're listening to their concerns. You're putting yourself in their shoes. You know, the other thing we often find is, you know, doctors are super smart, right? And they know everything about medicine. They know everything about all of the elements of healthcare, but you're treating a patient who knows 
relatively nothing about their condition or the potential outcomes or what's going on. And so sometimes it takes a doctor to take a, take a minute to take a step back and be like, okay, if this was me or if this was my daughter or if this was my son, how would I, how would I be feeling and how would I want to educate them and make sure they're understanding and um, really just to kind of put yourself in their shoes and show empathy goes a long way. So bedside manner is really huge because what we also see is that some of the specialties that get hit with a lot of frequent claims are the specialties where it's harder to develop rapport with a patient. So ER doctors, unfortunately, get named, you know, frequently because they have no relationship with the patients. They're just treating whoever shows up in the emergency room. Radiologists don't get that face-to-face interaction with patients like a family practitioner would. Um, Sometimes even pathologists, again, they're not the face-to-face providers. And so sometimes that can be more difficult for them. So bedside manner is a really big one. The other one to your point is, um, documentation. So you mentioned electronic medical records. That's huge. Um, So it's really important that you're being very thorough. Um, And with EMRs, it's really easy to click a bunch of boxes and select some drop downs and move on. But it's important that you stop and you really are um, documenting your thought process. So why did you do what you did? Why did you opt for treatment A instead of treatment B? What were the factors that went into your decision-making process for that? It's also important that you just are documenting kind of the entire circumstance around the care of the patient because the reality is doctors don't get sued the day after they treat a patient. It can take years sometimes before a malpractice claim actually happens. And obviously you've seen a lot more patients in the meantime. And so for you to then have to go back and recall that specific interaction with that patient, if your chart isn't well, de- you know, documented and well detailed, it's going to be hard for you to recall, you know, what you were thinking at the time that you treated that patient. So making sure your charting is obviously accurate, eligible, or legible, um, but also just really easy to go back and reference so that you know what you were thinking. And it's also important that it's um, timely. So you don't want to be going back after the fact and changing something because sometimes that can be seen as self-serving so being really careful with how you're doing it if you do need to make a change obviously modifying your record is better than trying to go in and completely scratch and say something completely different so just be aware that medical records can be admissible in court so whatever you put in there imagine like it's like what does your grandma want to read on the front page of the newspaper make sure that it's it's you know not derogatory make sure it's factual and objective and very clear so that when you go back and reference it later on it can help you and uh hopefully be a part of your defense super informative conversation jennifer thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you guys for having me we would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Finity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.